Here's a real-world clinical question for you. Let's say you're in your office or your clinic, and you see a patient who presents, let's say she's six or eight weeks along, with a little bit of vaginal bleeding. Well, she's otherwise low risk. You do your evaluation. You confirm it's an intrauterine pregnancy. And so you make the diagnosis of a threatened miscarriage and you say, look, you're otherwise low risk. Let's just wait to see what happens. And that's the correct thing to do. But this is done in the morning. It's now 5 p.m. And her blood test that you drew at that visit now comes back RH negative. Do you have your nurse call her back to give her Rogan? Or do you just say, well, you're so early on, it's not actually any real significant amount of bleed and it's not a procedure that we did. Let's just go ahead and and avoid Rogan. That's a good question, right? I mean, is Rogan necessary for threatened miscarriage early on in pregnancy? Now, before you give the answer, which is, well, wait a minute, according to ACOG, I thought you gave Rogam at any bleeding event, and that is kind of the ACOG stance, even though there's no real data that there's a lot of benefit in the first trimester, at least under 10 weeks. And this is the whole premise of this new article that's soon to come out in the Green Journal called Questioning Clinical Practice. All right, this hasn't come out yet. It was just released as a publication ahead of print. But the lead author, which is Gilmore et al., actually has a good point here because the use of RH immune globulin in the first trimester threatened AB or even in the management of miscarriage really is kind of controversial. So in this podcast, let's talk about using Rogam in the first trimester. Is it really necessary? I mean, are we going to potentially put a patient at risk of isoimmunization down the road? It's a good question, right? And I want to know what you do. So be sure to send me a quick Facebook message or respond to the question on Spotify. What would you do? Do you give this patient Rogam? Remember, she's already gone home. Do you bring her back just for that? Or do you let her go? Well, let's figure out that data right now. Our goal is to keep everyone up to date and practicing evidence-based medicine because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Before we jump into this data of whether we should give Rogam or not in the first trimester, remember, we're talking about early first trimester, not like up to 13 weeks and six days, all right? Most people agree you're going to give Rogam really over 12 weeks, but under 12 weeks or especially under 10 weeks with no instrumentation, it is kind of a soft call. It's kind of a gray zone. Now, this commentary that's going to come out in the Green Journal kind of makes a stance that we just don't have to give it, right? So that's the camp on the left. And then you have the camp on the right, let's say, who says, oh, we give it to everyone. Well, I find it interesting that nowhere in there is something in the middle, which is shared decision-making. I mean, you know, we've talked about that in previous podcasts. Let's let the patient decide. Look, the data is kind of hokey. It may not be of big value, but there is known benefits here. I mean, based on past data, all you need to sensitize a patient is 0.1 ml. Not 1 ml, 0.1 ml of RHD positive blood can be enough to trigger an immune response. Is that crazy or what? Now, the reason that people are questioning that is because the methodology used to come up with that 0.1 number was, wasn't perfect, right? There may have been some maternal uh, hemoglobin that, that's still kind of around and we didn't really tell if it was all fetal or potentially a maternal fraction. And so that's why people are calling this into question. But the idea is it doesn't take a lot to sensitize. And that's why there's one camp that's any bleeding sensitizing event, just go ahead and give it. And the others say, well, the chances, if you take a look at the new data, the chances that they actually get sensitized is really very small, especially if there's no hemorrhage and no instrumentation and it's early in the first trimester. 
So just something to consider in my practice because I'm very type A and I don't want to miss anything. I do recommend Rogam even if it's having the patient come back because I do feel that the risks and benefit ratio there justifies its use. You know, well, what are some risks of Rogam? Well, of course, it's bloodborne product and there's always a chance of allergy reaction, though that's very small. There is the extra cost. Uh, and it's not just the cost of the administration of the shot, but cost from time away from work or need for child care or whatever needs to be done so she can get the injection. And then third is the risk of potentially we're using Rogam when we don't have to and we could be contributing to potentially some shortage. We all know about supply line shortage now and we don't want that to be an issue. And so we want to save Rogam for when it's really required because it's based on blood products. It's just not like it's made in a lab. It's still made from human sources. And so one of the risks is that we may be dipping into stores when we don't have to. Right, So those are the potential risks, but the benefits are, are really known. So I just find it interesting that, again, this commentary didn't bring up the point of shared decision-making so much. It just said, just don't give it. Uh, and the other camp is give it to everyone, and it really should be something in the middle, especially in this early threatened pregnancy issue like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Just as a recap, right now it is standard practice and still used by consensus opinion that for any maternal possible sensitization event, that's any bleeding event in pregnancy, to give Rogam, regardless of trimester, knowing that Rogam stays in the system for 12 weeks, okay? Also, the routine time to administer Rogam is around 28 weeks in the third trimester, but you're supposed to draw, don't forget, maternal antibody levels before that because you want to make sure that they haven't been sensitized to that point. And if you just give them Rogam at 28 weeks, without an antibody screen, you can't check for sensitization later because Rogam is going to mask that. So remember, before you give Rogam, you're supposed to get an antibody screen to make sure that they are not already sensitized. It's interesting that we just have this inborn fear of the RH negative blood type, right? I mean, we, we have to respect it. I mean, RH isoimmunization is horrible and it's completely preventable. Uh, this whole ability to prevent isoimmunization has literally been heralded as a public health victory since Rogram was first introduced in the 1970s. So we really have done some good here. But RHD negative blood is very rare overall in the population. Overall in general, only about 10 to 15% of the U.S. population are RH negative. Did you know that? That's true. 85 to 90% are RH positive. Well, here's a little bit of useless trivia for you. If you're ever asked what kind of blood type is the most prevalent in the U.S., it's easy. It's around 40%. O positive. So O positive is by far the most typical blood type in the U.S. That's followed by A positive at around 35%, right? So 40% O positive, 35% is A positive. And then at the other extreme, at the other end of the spectrum, is AB negative blood type, which is your least likely to be out there. AB negative is the rarest, occurring anywhere from 0.5 up to 1% of the population. So O positive is most likely to be found in the population in the U.S., and then AB negative is the least likely. Now, I'm not trying to diminish the importance of RH negative blood type, not at all. I'm just trying to say it's not around every corner that we look because it's only 10 to 15% of the population, but that 10 to 15% must be identified so that we can prevent isoimmunization in the future. 
But consider this also, is that if a patient, if a mother is Rh negative, the chance that the child will also be Rh negative is up to 40%. So that's something else that's also helpful. It's not like, well, mother's Rh negative, there's a uh, you know, a 100% chance that that kid's going to be RH positive, and so we've got to protect her. No, because 40% of infants of RHD negative women will be RHD negative themselves. So you see how the pool gets a little bit smaller for the potential for isoimmunization. And then you consider this thrown into the issue of the first trimester, and this is where things get gray. Everybody good? So 10 to 15% of the population RH negative. If a woman is RH negative, there's a 40% chance that the child will also be RH negative. And then again, no chance of isoimmunization. That's why some are calling for potentially using cell-free DNA to try to find the blood type of the child. And you can do that. I mean, cell-free DNA allows for fetal blood type determination. According to the college, both retrospective and prospective observational studies have shown that fetal RHD status determination in the first trimester can have a sensitivity greater than 99% and a specificity greater than 95%. But there's still concerns here. The first is that there's a high rate of inconclusive results. Well, that doesn't help. And that can be influenced by race. It's also unsure if it's even cost-effective of getting this cell-free DNA to look for the fetal blood type that could be inconclusive as a result versus just giving patients Rogam at 28 weeks and giving it for some potential bleeding-sensitizing event. So it's definitely not standard to get fetal RH typing uh, by cell-free DNA, but it's something to consider, and that is in the ACOG bulletin. That bulletin is number 181 from August 2017. Let's camp out here with this practice bulletin. Remember, that's number 181 here for just a minute. Because I think it's interesting that back in 2017, we were talking about this. Well, we're still going to be talking about it in 2023 when this new commentary comes out, just questioning clinical practice. And while we are getting closer to having a clear answer that we probably don't need to give it in the first trimester, it definitely is not universally accepted as truth. It's still controversial. But back in 2017, here's what the college has to say about giving Rogam for threatened pregnancy loss in the first trimester. Quote, whether to administer anti-D immune globulin to a patient with threatened pregnancy loss and a live embryo or fetus at or before 12 weeks is controversial and no evidence-based recommendations can be made. End quote. Well, there you go. But remember, sometimes having no data doesn't mean don't do anything at all, right? Again, it's still in that risk-benefit ratio. And what is the risk compared to what is the benefit? Well, the benefit is if we really only need 0.1 mLs of Rh-positive blood to sensitize a woman, why not give it? After all, RHD antigens have been reported on fetal erythrocytes as early as 38 days from fertilization. Is that crazy or what? If you're talking about gestational age, that's seven and a half weeks. Plus, if there's a significant hemorrhage or there's instrumentation, again, that raises the risk of sensitization. So see how you have to put these things into proper perspective. So it's not that easy as what do you do in the first trimester for Rogam in an RH negative patient? Well, well, hold on. That's a big question. In the first trimester, are you talking like 13 and 6? I'm going to give her Rogam. Are we talking like 6 weeks where just a little bit of spotting? I'm not going to give her anything. You see how its clinical context matters. I think we've said that in the previous podcast. Data is important, but data in the proper context is what's most vital. 
So it has to do with the quantity of bleeding. It has to do with gestational age. Make sure you get that right. And if possible, if you know the blood type of the father, then that's one thing. Or if you could check the blood type of the child with cell-free DNA, that's another option. Because right now, according to the college, remember, there's no real evidence-based recommendations as to what to do for the first trimester. Again, it says, quote, because of insufficient evidence that a threatened pregnancy loss before 12 weeks requires anti-D immune globulin, no recommendation can be made at this time, end quote. And just in disclosure, as I mentioned, in my practice, we do give it because I feel the benefit. I don't want to get that wrong. I'd rather take time away from her schedule to protect her in the future if I can, knowing, of course, that that data is a little gray. Remember we talked about the 0.1 mLs that's required for maternal sensitization. Well, where did that come out from? Well, that actually is in this questioning clinical practice commentary that's coming out in the Green Journal. And I think the science there is, is pretty interesting and it's also not perfect. And here's why. Early assessments of these prevalence of first trimester fetal maternal hemorrhage used detection methods that actually lacked a little bit of specificity and precision. The early published rates of alloimmunization that became the basis of the current ACOG guidelines relied on the KB test. Remember, that's the Klehauer Betke for these estimates. But the KB test, while very good, actually can distinguish between fetal red blood cells and maternal F cells because they are morphologically similar and it can be overestimating fetal cell volume. Using those early techniques, that's why they came up with a number of 0.1 ml per maternal blood volume of 4,000 mLs. So not every patient's blood volume is 4,000, some are more, and the 0.1 ml may have been overestimated because some of those may have been maternal F hemoglobin. So it wasn't perfect, okay? But that's where we're at now, and that number is still quoted as 0.1 mLs as a testimony that you don't need a lot, but even those early studies may have been a little bit flawed. Using newer data actually does question that 0.1 sensitization amount. In 2019, Horvath et al. developed a flow cytometry protocol, and flow cytometry is much more accurate than a KB test, and they use this flow cytometry protocol to see how many true fetal red blood cells were in the maternal system after separating any potential maternal F cells for more precise classification of fetal maternal hemorrhage, all right? So remember, now we're at 2019. For that study, blood samples were tested in 37 patients who underwent first trimester uterine aspiration for either an induced abortion or early pregnancy loss, and they were all between 5 and 12 weeks. Now, they all use a threshold that we just talked about, 0.1 ml of fetal red blood cells, as a potential benchmark for sensitization. What did they find? Well, using flow cytometry, they found that no patients met that threshold and that any detectable fetal maternal hemorrhage was way below that number. By the way, this current commentary on questioning clinical practice isn't the first one to bring this up. We've known this. There have been issues with that early data, but people felt comfortable with it because like, hey, it's pretty good. It's about an average. It's just an approximation. And we know that you can get sensitized with it. And we know that RH isomerization is terrible because hydrox fetalis is deadly. Uh, and so we can really do something here. So I'm comfortable with a 0.1 possibly overestimation, right? So we've known that for a while. That's nothing new. But our comfort level has really been quoting the 0.1 ml, that's all that's needed for sensitization, and it may be a little overcalled. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So at this point, you're either going, yep, I'm all for it. I get it. It's super rare, especially under 10 weeks. Not going to give Rogam. Fantastic. And the other group of listeners are like, I don't know about that. I'm going to give Rogam. That's where I'm at. But there is data that supports its safety. Again, not giving Rogam under 10 weeks seems to be evidence-based. Look at this new data. Listen to this other study, again in 2019, by Weeb et al. Because it actually shows that using a set criteria of when you can avoid Rogam actually is pretty safe. This study by Weeb et al., again 2019, compared rates of alloimmunization, so rates of sensitization, in Canada to the Netherlands. In Canada, RH immune goblin prophylaxis is recommended universally, and in the Netherlands, it's not. In the Netherlands, RH immune globulin prophylaxis is not given before seven weeks of gestation for medically induced or aspiration abortions or before 10 weeks of spontaneous abortions. They then looked for clinically meaningful perinatal antibody levels in the patients. In other words, did they have anti-D antibodies? All right, let's figure it out. And what they found was that they had similar levels of antibodies in the group from the Netherlands and in Canada, despite a higher rate of RH negativity in the Netherlands and a lower rate of administration of Rogam. I think that's super interesting. So let's put that in simpler words. More people RH negative and they still didn't get Rogam and there was the exact same amount of alloimmunization, which goes to show that it's pretty rare overall in the first trimester. So according to this current commentary that's coming out in the Green Journal, these authors used that study and concluded, quote, these results suggest that it is acceptable to forego RH immune goblin treatment in patients who are RH negative at early gestational ages, end quote. Because of this new evolving data, there are groups that are calling away from Rogan in the first trimester up to around 12 weeks, all right? So, for example, the Society of Family Planning no longer recommends Rogam administration before 12 weeks of gestation for either spontaneous or induced abortion when there is no sharp curatage. And they call that a reduction of a barrier to care. So that's the caveat, under 12 weeks and without sharp curatage. But that's one society. Remember, that's not what ACOG says. And this approach has not been widely adopted in the broader medical community. 
right now, emergency room physicians, family medicine, uh, women's healthcare providers, we still feel very comfortable giving Rogam because it's just such a big switch for us. Remember, this has been going down since the 70s. And we've actually made big wins here in prevention of RH isoimmunization. So this whole podcast topic, just like this title of this new uh, commentary coming out called Questioning Clinical Practice, is just meant to get you thinking. So if a patient comes in, she's six weeks, like we said at the beginning of the case, uh, or eight weeks, and just has a little bit of spotting, a little bit of light bleeding, and especially if there's no massive hemorrhage and there's no instrumentation, that patient probably doesn't need Rogam, or at least it should be offered to her as shared decision-making. Of course, if there's heavier bleeding and there's instrumentation, especially with sharp curatage, then that's something else. And remember, this is only for gestational ages at the maximum of 12 weeks, where over 12 weeks, you know, people feel comfortable giving Rogam. We're talking about early pregnancy, definitely under 10, and then 10 to 12 is questionable. But as we just said, the Society of Family Planning uses 12 weeks. So this isn't all first trimester. I just have to nail that down for clarity. This is with certain criteria. And I hope, again, this podcast episode, as we said before, it's not just to spoon feed information, but to get you thinking. And it should be really part of shared decision making. As I mentioned before, I give our patients Rogam. It just makes me comfortable. Uh, I want to protect them until we definitely have a stance from either SMFM or ACOG that we don't have to do it. But the needle is kind of moving towards that. But as of right now, the standard practice is to give Rogam for any potential sensitizing event. But just be aware that there is these waters being ruffled that it may not be necessary. Did I say waters being ruffled? Isn't that feathers being ruffled? Oh my gosh, whichever, you get the idea. All right, podcast family, we've covered our, all right, podcast family, we have summed up and discussed the use of RH immune globulin in the first trimester abortion or miscarriage. This is coming up as a questioning clinical practice piece in the Green Journal, and the lead author is Emma Gilmore. As always, we're thankful for you. Keep those messages coming. We get encouraged when we read those. Have a great rest of your day, weekend, week, or whenever it is you're listening to this, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.